Here's what the wealthy understand. First off, they understand that there's only so many hours in the day. So if you monetize an hour to dollars, you limit the amount of wealth you will ever have and you limit the scope of what you can do and be and how many people you can help. So what they decided and what they figured out is, yes, we have to work for money, but once they work for money, they applied law number one of wealth and that is they kept one-tenth or more of their gross earnings. It is a law. Listen, like there's there's six laws of wealth. I'm writing a book about it. And it's all the way back to Babylon times, uh, the richest man in Babylon, if you haven't read that. But I kept one-tenth. And it, then what, I, they, what they said is once I have the money that I keep, the rest I can spend and give away and blow. But once I've got that money, the most important thing is law number two. That money has to go to work for me. So you tell me, what are we taught in grade school? We're taught to work for money. Where we're taught to go get a job and work for money. Then we're taught to do what with that money? You make your money. And what's the first thing you do with your money? You already mentioned it. Yeah, put it in put your it savings. Put it in somebody else's bank. Yeah. Like <laughs> you give up control of your hard-earned dollars, your most valuable dollars you will ever have because they're not worth more tomorrow or next year because of inflation. And you gave up control to the bank. And what does the bank give you in return? I'll tell you what they give you, a sucker that has a wrapper around it that says dum-dums. So who's the smart one here, you or them? Hey guys, this episode is sponsored by Tranquil Turtle Massage. Tracy over there, the founder, she's a small town girl from Montana, loves God, loves her family, loves her friends, loves working out, fishing and camping. She has a passion for helping those in need and enjoys being creative with woodworking, crocheting, healthy baking pottery and cooking. Look, she began her massage journey back in 2010 where she graduated from massage school up in Anchorage, Alaska. She specializes in her signature massages, the Hanu Infusion and the Hanu Ashiatsu, as well as the Gua Sha and Manual Lymphatic Drainage. If you're looking for a massage specialist and someone who could get you feeling good, go see Tracy down at Tranquil Turtle Massage. And while you're there, check out CDA Microblading, offering Coeur best tattoo brows, plasma fibroblast, tightening, and PMU services right there in the heart of downtown Coeur Make sure you book your appointment at pnwmobilemassage.com. Chris, your husband, father, former pro snowboarder. You're also speaker, author, host of Risky Builders on HGTV, founder of Money School TV and America's number one money mentor. Thank you so much for your time, man. I appreciate oh, it. Oh, man. Thanks for having me on. I love to go back from the guests. Like, where did you grow up? What was childhood like for you? Yeah, I mean, childhood wasn't like many people. I mean, I grew up in a lower, lower middle class family. Dad was an alcoholic. My mom had to raise me. It was a huge struggle for keeping a 700 square foot two bedroom house, you know, over our heads. And uh, the one cool thing about that experience, you know, is no boohoo me, you know, it was the greatest thing that could have ever happened to me because I learned a lot about dreaming because I couldn't have things. I couldn't just ask mom for something you know, I had to work for it and I had to dream about it. So a lot of the things I wanted from skateboards to BMX to dirt bikes, they, they started with just drawing pictures on trapper keepers back in the day. Remember those things, yeah, uh, trapper keepers and just getting so into like the act of dreaming about it, that it actually became so real that I would, I, I would physically have dreams about these things. And then those dreams eventually became reality. It took a long time, sometimes years to get a dirt bike, you know, months and months to get a skateboard where other kids, you know, they just go, mom, can I get a skateboard off to the skate shop? I remember, you know, on a rare occasion, mom would take me to the skateboard shop and I'd just look, you know, I was just, 
I couldn't buy anything, but I got ideas. Oh, slime ball wheels. Oh, look at the Powell deck. You know, it was just, it was the act of just seeing it and then visualizing myself doing it. And I never thought different of that until I was much later in my life when I realized that I wasn't normal, like in the way that things happened in my household and family, it was, it was different than everybody else. So one of my first big things that I did is, you know, I was a hard worker. I worked on farms and, you know, cleaned up pigs, pig pens and, you know, did things that most people like, oh, I'd never do that. But it was it was awesome. I mean, I'd ride my dirt bike to work and then I'd get done at two o'clock and I'd go ride my dirt bike some more. It was cool. I had gas. That's all I cared about. And when I was 16, I ended up kind of thinking a little differently. And I got a real job at a restaurant, but the restaurant owner, owner treated me like such garbage. I was I was degraded every day and I literally got clinically depressed. And one day I, I went to work and I, I remember this day vividly, like it was yesterday. I said, I quit. I didn't know it at that point, but that was the day that I quit trading hours for dollars because I came home and I said, mom, I, I quit my job thinking she was going to be mad. She wasn't, she was happy. I stood up for myself and I said, can I start a clothing line in the basement? And that was my first business, 16 years old, 1992. I started fat clothing company, PHAT. And I became an entrepreneur, but it wasn't about an entrepreneur for me back then. It was about being creative and being able to visualize and put, you know, just graphics that I would draw on t-shirts. And I got some friends at school to help me sell them out of the backpacks. And we grew that company over the next year, had our, our clothing in a whole bunch of skate and snowboard shops across the Eastern seaboard. And that's where my next dream started. I was on the verge of becoming a pro snowboarder at that time. That was my sole goal. And all I needed was money to get to the resorts and, you know, do the things that snowboarders need to do. And I saw shop owners living what I envisioned back then is, you know, what I call today, the perfect day. They would, you know, go snowboarding in the morning. They were having fun. They came back, they worked their shop at night. Life was good. And I saw this and all of a sudden I said, I got to have that. So I started on this mission of starting my own shop, Fat Man Board Shops. I had fat clothing company, so it was fat. And then I was the man. So I just put the two together. <laughs> That's a joke if you forgot that. But uh, <laughs> at 17 years old, I didn't realize that it was that hard to raise 70,000 bucks. And it was, and I got told no by everybody. My dad told me to come get a job, stop with these foolish ideas, get a job at the factory. Uh, I conveniently mailed my dad cats in the cradle. And you know that was the end of that story. But um, yeah, Fat Man became a reality, not because of me, but because of my mom. Yeah. realizing that my dream was going to die with everybody else's failed dreams. And she saw this and she did something really stupid, Eric. She, she put the only thing she had in life up on the line. So her punk snowboard kid could chase his dream. And she put the house, cool. the equity she had in the house on the line as collateral so that I could get an SBA backed loan. And that was November of 1994, man, it seems like so long ago that fat man board shop became a reality in a little town called Lockport, New York. And that store, if any of you want to look it up, Batman Board Shops is still around today. I don't own it. I sold it in 2010 to a former uh, snowboard athlete who was a pro as well. And they still operate it today. And it's such an awesome thing to see that, that that idea, that dream that never should have become possible. And it did because of hard work and just the, the willingness to just never give up on that. And uh, that it still lives on even without me, man. Sometimes we got to think bigger about the legacy in life. But I, I you know, the, the rest of the story just goes very, I'll go quick with it. I, yeah. I was running the stores, uh, 
dot-com crash happened. My business dropped 30%. I had to get a job. I landed in Wall Street of all places, and I excelled because all I did is I watched these big multi-million dollar producers sitting in these glass cubicles when I was in the bullpen in the middle dialing for dollars. <laughs> and I said, you know, these guys show up at 9, 9.30. They go for an hour, two-hour lunch, and they're out of here by 4.30. So if I want one of those offices, I think the only thing I need to do is do what they're unwilling to do. I'd get there at 7.00. I called, you know, during lunch when they were out eating, I, I couldn't afford to go to lunch. Anyway, I would make phone calls then and people answered their calls after work. When all the guys left, I was the last guy in there with a the janitor and I was making calls till seven, eight at night because people actually answered the phone. The only reason I stopped at eight is because that was the latest we were allowed to call people. And because of that, I became one of the top financial advisors in that firm. Uh, I was crushing it, making a lot of money. Unfortunately, ego got the best of me when you make money. You know, and you never had money before, all of a sudden you start playing that card. You start thinking your shit doesn't stink and you start really just becoming, you know, hey, I'm going to get a bigger car, a fancier house and all these things. And I, I got lost in that. I flipped a couple houses in the process in 06 and 07. Didn't make a lot of money, but I showed that I could do it. And then 08, I dove in and I bought a dilapidated paint store to open a skateboard shop in. My main fat man store was going to move there. And I borrowed 370 grand right before the great recession hit, you know, I thought my life was going one direction. And all of a sudden here I am going the complete opposite. And this was a humbling experience because my ego just got shattered in a second, all the money that I had built up, which I thought at that time was a decent amount for my age and my twenties was gone. And I was one payment away from being bankrupt. And I came home to my new token girlfriend who just moved into my house because I had the fancy car and everything else. And I had to say to her, sweetie, and her name was Larissa. She's now my wife and we have a daughter together. But I said, sweetie, I need your help. I need your help paying the mortgage. I need your help paying the utilities. And sweetie, my friend Pete's going to move into that bedroom down the hall and Jessica's going to move in upstairs. Any questions? I, this is my ego getting in the way because I thought legitimately, I thought I had probably had about a 50-50 shot that she was going to stick around. I talked to friends after the fact and they said, dude, you had less than a 10% chance <laughs> of that chick sticking around at that point in time. But I think she kind of liked me because she stuck it out. Well, and from that, that point, like, I don't know. I mean, I, I dove into real estate really big, still an advisor, still pro snowboarder. And uh, I, I got up to 36 units by 14 and then I lost it all. I lost it all again, man. I made some stupid decisions, didn't understand banking, didn't understand money, just kept doing what they kept telling me to do and bought into the, the whole system and boom, 37th deal. Didn't fit in the square box of the banks. They froze my lines. I had to sell everything. And I spiraled into one of the worst depressions and worst periods of time in my life to the point where I had to sell the dream house that me and Larissa bought. I had to sell the Audis. I literally had to sell everything, including the bedroom set. That's how bad things got. And I was making decent money. But when you bury yourself and you don't understand how money works, this is the result. My ego. And I was seeking unrealistic returns. I violated all the laws of, of wealth. And uh, the, the cool part about we'll call this failing is when you're at that low point, Eric, you're actually willing to learn. You're willing to accept things because all of a sudden your egos, you don't have one anymore, dude. You just failed. You just lost it all. Yeah. So that was the point when I learned the most. And I met some very influential people that taught me that what I thought I knew about money, which was vast because I was a, at that point, what a 14 year veteran in the financial advisory world at a high level. And I thought I knew everything about money and investing and I met multimillionaires, like 100 millionaires at these events. And these guys did the complete opposite of what I was taught to do. So I had a decision, like, am I right with everything I've learned as an advisor? Or are these multimillionaires right? And who's wrong? 
And what I learned at this point was something that I'll never forget. I learned that everything that I thought I knew was a lie and that everything that I needed to know was right there in front of me the entire time. But I was too ignorant to actually open my eyes and realize that the wealthy did things different than every one of us and the wealthy were in control of their money. And man, that's, I guess, where the story begins. I, I sold, uh, I, me and my wife flipped a lot of houses, got a show on HGTV and you yeah. know, that was great. But then in 18, I retired from the financial advisory world. I literally got a call from my broker and they said, Hey, you're either going to be a TV show star or you're going to be a, uh, an advisor, make a decision. I said, see you later. And I sold the practice. I was already checked out and I sold the practice to a guy in my office and I still get checks for that. But uh, that was the day that I decided I was literally going to go out and teach people the truth about money. I was going to teach them how to take back control and how to actually mimic what the wealthy do with money. And it's been a humbling and amazing experience. Man, what a crazy journey you've been on. I love though that, I mean, you, you obviously go through ups and downs and I'm, I'm a big fan of Ed Milet and he talks about, you know, oh, yeah. life happens for us, not to us, man. And his story is uh, awesome too, about that Chrysler LeBaron dressed up as a Mercedes. Oh my gosh, dude. That was the funniest thing when I heard him <laughs> tell that story, dude. <laughs> I've spoke on stages with Ed. His story is awesome. <laughs> I had the honor of having him on my show. I actually won the Ed Milet Max Out Challenge in 2019 and got to have a phone call with him and it changed my life forever, man. And, I saw and, that, man. I saw those profiles. That was awesome. That it, Sometimes it's just that one moment, that one person that changes everything for you, man. Yeah. And I'm definitely, I have not been good with my money. Like, you know, I was 21 years old. I had to file bankruptcy. I was $28,000 in the hole. I was in jail at 18, man. I battled those addictions, got through it. And, you know, today sitting debt-free, but a lot of people, they keep their money in their bank, including myself. I was never taught or personally learned to do otherwise, but you talk about this concept of infinite banking and the truth about money. And I think this is so huge. When I watched that video that you did, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, mind blown. Can you explain this concept and, and what is the better alternative uh, to just keeping money in the bank? You know, and I definitely want to talk with you more on my personal stuff outside of this. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it, it's, it's very simple. Here, here's the first thing I learned, you know, as an advisor, I knew none of this because I was taught to give up control of my money, just like I was taught to have my clients give up control of their money to me and the firms that I work for. Yeah. But think about everything we're taught from grade school all the way up, right? We are taught to put a monetary value on our time call it an hour. We are taught to trade hours for dollars. And, you know, I remember when I was young, I was like, oh my God, if I could only make a hundred dollars. And for those of you listening, I'm holding a hundred dollar bill. Yeah. If I could only make a hundred dollars an hour, I'd be at the top of the world. And then what you make a hundred dollars and then you're like, oh, that's not enough. I need 500. Well, you know what? You can't put a dollar value on your time because your time is priceless. Here's what the wealthy understand. First off, they understand that there's only so many hours in the day. So if you monetize an hour, to dollars, you limit the amount of wealth you will ever have. And you limit the scope of what you can do and be and how many people you can help. So what they decided and what they figured out is, yes, we have to work for money. But once they work for money, they applied law number one of wealth. And that is they kept one tenth or more of their gross earnings. It is a law. Listen, like there's, there's six laws of wealth. I'm writing a book about it. And it's all the way back to Babylon times, uh, the richest man in Babylon, if you haven't read that, but I kept one tenth and it, then what I they what they said is once I have the money that I keep, the rest I can spend and give away and blow. But once I've got that money, the most important thing is law number two. That money has to go to work for me. So you tell me, what are we taught in grade school? We're taught to work for money. Well, we're taught to go get a job and work for money. Then we're taught to do what with that money? You make your money. And what's the first thing you do with your money? You already mentioned it. Yeah, put it in put your it savings. Put it in somebody else's bank. Yeah. Like <laughs> you give up control 
of your hard-earned dollars, your most valuable dollars you will ever have because they're not worth more tomorrow or next year because of inflation, and you gave up control to the bank. And what does the bank give you in return? I'll tell you what they give you. A sucker that has a wrapper around it that says dum-dums. So who's the smart one here, you or them? Okay, right. so now they've got your money. Do they take your money and put it in a little box in the back with your name on it? Hell no, man. They take that money and they move that money. They lend it right back to you at 500% more than what they're paying you. Banks make 400 to 1300% more than all of us make in the, the, on the money they pay us. They make 500% or more on the money we leave there. And we are okay with that. No, we've been brainwashed to think that that's the only option. The wealthy figured out that isn't what we're going to do. From the Rockefellers to the Rothschilds, to the JPs, to the Morgans, to the Walt Disneys, to the Ray Crocs, right up to whether you love them or hate them, it doesn't even matter. Joe Biden, they're all wealthy. And you know what they do with their money? They don't leave it in traditional banks. They created their own banking system and they just changed one thing that all of you can do so easily that I learned to do a long time ago. And that one thing changed everything. And what is that one thing? That's all you gotta do, change one thing. And that is where your hard earned dollars go first. Hmm. That's it. And everybody's like, oh, well, Chris, damn, that's easy. Like, just tell me where to put it. All right, great. You wanna know where to take and put that money where all those families that I just mentioned put their money? Here's what you do. You walk into a giant mutually owned insurance company and you tell them with your money that you've kept, okay, that one tenth, and you say, listen, I need this money to work for me. And some guy on some podcast said that all I need to do is change one thing and I need to go to the insurance company and deposit the money at the insurance company because you guys pay a guaranteed interest rate plus dividends and the gains I earned are tax-free and I can use the money without interrupting that interest and dividends you're paying me, right? Like I, I just want to deposit my money here. The bank or the insurance company will say, you know what, sir? We're not a bank. Get out. But mm. that's because you don't understand the rules of engagement. You can't just deposit money in an insurance company. Right. Rockefellers and Rothschilds figured this out. They were bankers, and they didn't even keep their wealth in banks. They kept them in mutually owned insurance companies through a vehicle you all know and don't understand. And here it is, dropping the bomb. Where do they keep their wealth? I'll tell you. Specially designed and engineered whole life insurance policies. Oh, but Dave Ramsey and Susie Orman said that's a terrible place. And my advisor said that whole life is a terrible place to put your money. Sure. If you go to your broke-ass brother-in-law and you give your broke-ass brother-in-law the money to put in a regular whole life off the shelf, yeah, that's probably pretty stupid. We are not talking about the same whole life that you have been conditioned to believe is bad. It's all propaganda. It's all marketing because whole life is the least profitable thing for insurance companies. Term insurance is the most profitable because they only have to pay out on about a little more than 1%. So if you owned a company, Eric, and you had two products, one, you, you had to pay out on probably 70 plus percent of the, the, the benefits that you promised to pay. And then another one that you have to pay out maybe a little more than 1%. So it's a 99% profit. Which one would you promote, advertise, tell your sales team to sell? Come on, the 99%. Yeah. You know yeah. what that is? Term insurance. So why do you think term and invested difference is the almighty? Because that's where they make the money on you. Why don't you know about this? Because the advisors don't know about it. They don't talk about it. And because if they did these specially designed and engineered whole lives, commonly called privatized banking, they would have to reduce their compensation, i.e. commission, by 60 to 90%. So now do you see why you don't know about this and the wealthy do? Because the wealthy don't use the same people to get their advice from. They pay people, retainers, to go find them the best sources. And where do they land every time? These specially designed and engineered whole life plans. So why? 
Eric, let me just give you a quick run through and I'm going to do it visually. So anyone listening, just kind of, I need you to practice what I did, visualizing yeah. and dreaming. I'm holding, I don't know what I got in my hand, 300 bucks. Okay. I've got $300 that I have kept. It's one-tenth of my income. Okay. So I'm going to take that $300. I'm going to change where it goes. I'm going to find someone like me who can build one of these specially designed and engineered whole life policies because not everybody knows how they work. And I'm going to take this $300 and I'm going to put it into my new privatized bank. What is my privatized bank? It's a specially designed whole life. I already said that. And now when I put that money there, what's changed? Instead of the bank, I put my money here. What do I earn? Well, right now I get a guaranteed interest rate. And that guaranteed interest rate, depending on the company, is between 2 and 3.75%. Then I earn a dividend. So with the dividend, I will tell you, my money now has the ability to earn 6% by 2021 dividends. Okay, So I'm making 6% when you and everybody else is putting their money in the bank earning what? 0.00002? For sure. I got that about right. Or did I need to add a couple zeros? So now I'm making 6%. You're making practically nothing. So now what's the catch? Well, the catch is why did you put your money in your checking account? Oh, because I can go take it out. Well, so can I. So can I. I can go right to my private bank. I can click a button on the platform for the insurance company. And the insurance company will send me in 36 hours my money in the form of a loan. And as soon as I say that, people are like, oh, I knew there was a catch. A loan is bad. I don't want more loans. I'm trying to pay off my loans. But what if there were loans that you never need to pay back? See, I put the money in this whole life policy that I told you is not a normal whole life. And then I want to take that money out. I can take out in the first year up to 90, sometimes even 95% of the money I put in, not 100%. So if you can't handle putting money in, so if you're one of those people that takes $300, puts it in your checking account, and then before the end of the year, you make it a point to make sure that you take all $300 out just to say, told you I could do it, then you're not a fit for this. But if you're like everybody else that you put money in your savings, you actually leave some of it in your savings and take some of it out, this is a good fit. So in the first year, I take that money out. Now, here's the deal. I put 300 in. Let's just pretend that I then find an opportunity. And that opportunity is my visa has a balance of $200 that I'm paying 20% on. So I take $200 out of my whole life policy, my private bank, and I take it as a loan. But the insurance company doesn't care if I ever pay the loan back because all that loan was is in advance of a death benefit the insurance company promised to pay. So now do you see my $300 never leaves the account. The insurance company gives me 200 of my death benefit as, and just uses the 300 as collateral. So now I have $300 in my account earning 6% by 2021 standards, and I'm holding $200 in my hand. Wouldn't that be pretty cool? But what if I was in year two and I put 300 in and I took 300 out and I still earned 6% on the 300 I put in that year? Now, that would be even cooler, wouldn't it? See, this is what Albert Einstein understood. It's called compound interest. Let's just hit that. Uninterrupted compound interest to be specific. He called it the eighth wonder of the world. He said, those that understand it, earn it. Those that don't, pay it. I will tell you, based on having thousands and thousands of clients that we help do this, most people fall on the unfortunate side that they don't understand it. So they pay interest when so few 5% or, or less understand it and earn it. So all I just told you how to do is earn uninterrupted compound interest on your money while still having the ability to use it. So let's go to that visa card member that I owed $200 for. I just took a loan from my policy for 200 and I'm going to take that 200 and I'm going to give it to visa and pay off my visa. Whew, thank God that debt's gone. All right. But that's not where the equation ends. That's not what wealthy would do because the wealthy would treat their money, that 300 or 200, whichever you're using, they would treat that money the same as that they, they treated Visa's money. Every month, 
they were making a payment to Visa at a rate of 20% interest or whatever your rate is with your credit card. So if I pay Visa off with my bank's money, which is that specially designed whole life, I should treat my money the same as I treated Visa's. So if I paid Visa $50 every single month in interest payments on that $200 uh, Visa balance, I'm just making numbers up, what yeah. I would then do is just change one thing. And I would change the name on the check every month. I would set up a bill pay for $50, exact same amount I paid Visa. And I would change the name instead of writing Visa on there, I would write Chris Noggle. And $50 a month would come back over here and be deposited back in my bank, which is my privatized banking system that I've created using a specially designed whole life. So all I want you to envision now, that was a lot of numbers. So let's simplify this. Draw a circle, your money, your $300. Just all I want you to do is visualize your $300 is on the left side of that circle. And all we're going to do is we're going to take the $200 and we're going to move it around the top part of the circle. And it's going to arrive over here to the right side which is what I call opportunity land. The opportunity in this point was to recycle and recapture 20% interest that we were giving away to Visa. So I take this 200 that just moved from my bank to the right side, the opportunity zone, and I pay off Visa. And then I take $50 a month. And then I want you to envision that $50 makes its way all the way around the bottom part of the circle and ends up where? Because what is a circle? If you start at a circle and you go around the circle, where does it end up? The same place every single time. You know what that same place is? Your bank. Guess what? You all just learned exactly how banking works. And if you just keep repeating that process, you take the money you deposit in your bank, plus the interest that you recapture because your money is now working for you. And in this case, at a rate of 20%, because that's what you were giving away, you took it back. It's the same as making 20. Now I take the money that I put in my bank, plus the interest that I've earned, and I send that money back around the top of the circle into another opportunity, maybe a real estate deal, maybe a private lending deal, maybe you buy a car. But each time you do that, the most important thing is you cannot violate the rules or the laws of wealth. If your money goes to work for you and creates interest or earnings, the rest of that money needs to flow back to your bank. Because if you're one of the silly ones out there, I have better words for that, but one of the silly ones that when you make the interest, you go out and you just put it in somebody else's bank because that's what you've been taught to do. Like, I'm going to mail you a sign and that sign's going to say, I'm stupid. Because literally that's the only word I can give you. You Remember that comedian? You know, to save everybody time, here's your sign. Remember that? Yeah. So like, that's (laughs) it. Like, I'm just going to mail you a sign. If you create a banking system, but then you start using other people's banks, where does that make any sense? Eric, this is the best way I can explain this. Let me, let me do this because I I get caught up in this because I get so passionate about this because it's so simple, but so many people want to overcomplicate it. So let me make this simple. If you owned a restaurant or a chain of restaurants, would you eat at your own restaurant? Would you go to dinner at your restaurant? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. If you owned a hair salon, now both of us, we got this story. So I got a big hair problem. I don't really cut my hair, but if you owned a hair salon, would you go to your hair salon to get your hair cut? Or would you go to your competitors? For sure. Mine. Of course you would. Cause if you yeah. went to your competitors, they'd start thinking you're crazy. And then the last one, if you owned your own gym, would you work out at your gym? Yeah. Damn right. I would. Of course you would. You own the business. You're the proprietor, the entrepreneur, you're proud of it. You, you do business with your business. Hmm. Final game, and this sums it all up. If you owned your own bank, would you make deposits in your bank? Okay. Heck yeah. Would you take loans from your bank to buy the cars, the boats, the motorcycles and everything? Of course you would. Would you then take withdrawals from your bank when you needed money? Of course you would. Would you go and take your money out of your bank and go deposit it in your competing neighbor bank, somebody else's bank? Oh, no, you wouldn't. You own the bank. You, you do all the business with your bank. So then the final thing I ask is, 
why don't you all create your own bank? Because it's not very hard. I just told you how to do it. You just got to find somebody that knows how to build them, which is us. And, and then we can basically guide you through the whole process of how to be your own bank. Now, that's a lot. It's simple for me because I've been doing it for years. But the one thing that everybody has to do to really be able to tap into this uninterrupted compound interest and all this, this banking concept is change your mindset about money. Mm. Stop giving up control of it. Stop thinking other people care more about your money than you do. Because you know what? I'll tell you something that I've learned. As I've gotten to different levels of success and as I help thousands and thousands of people, the one thing I will tell people is I should not care more about your money than you do. And if that's the case, man, we ain't a fit. I can't help you. I don't want to help you until you care more about your money than I do. Then we got a good fit. Sorry, I went off on a tangent, but I hope that helped. Bro, that was amazing. So good. <laughs> so much good information right there, man. There's That's going to help so many people, including myself. I'm going to be reviewing this video over and over and over, man. That was good, man. I got to say, oh, uh, dude. Just, I'm just in one of those moods today where I'm just kind of frustrated that people just, they just can't take and understand the simplest things and they just want to give up control to everybody else. And I yeah. don't just mean your money. Yeah. Well, I know that we just have a couple minutes left. I have one question for you. Yes, sir. Where, where do you see crypto going? Is crypto going to continue to grow or are we going to just kind of see that flat line or is that going to replace the dollar bill? That's a great question. I get asked this a lot. So I'm not a crypto expert, first off, transparency, but I've learned a lot because I'm surround myself with the people that know a lot. And yeah. I will tell you, if you, when you talk about crypto, it's a broad thing, but let's just talk Bitcoin and Ethereum, right? The two, the two steady eddies. I think they've got legs and I think they're going to go somewhere. I think Ethereum more than Bitcoin, mm -hmm. because what will eventually happen is, you know, they're, they're going to trend. You know, I've been buying it as it went down and I just sold uh, one of my positions and I trade off levels. You know, I'm just a professional trader, so I don't buy and hold. I buy it low and I sell it high. But is it going to be around? Yes, I think it's, it, it is. But I think everybody that's investing in crypto needs to understand one thing, and that is there is different seasons to all investing. There's summer and there's winter, and winter is upon us. And you're seeing it. And all I mean by that is there is a storm coming. I live in Buffalo, New York. If you ever hear of Lake, Lake uh, oh, my God, <laughs> I forgot the damn name. Um, the, the big storms that come across the lakes. Sorry, I live in Buffalo and I can't even think about it, but uh, lake effect snow. Okay. So it's a huge storm coming and that storm is the markets are going to collapse. You, if you can't see that, you're blind. When the stock market collapses, people think that crypto or Bitcoin or all these things are the safe haven. They are not. They are correlated to the markets. You see it every time the markets fall, crypto falls with it. Sometimes a day later, because people first rush their money into crypto, then investor confidence to, to derails, and then you see crypto go down. But here's the, here's the game. When the stock market collapses, sit on the sidelines, keep your money in your private banking systems, and then wait for the markets to go down, wait for crypto to go down. I will tell you my next buy-in would be 40,000, or I'd wait for it to fall to 20 in a big market fallout. And then I would just hold. And I would wait for it to ride back up. I think, I think Bitcoin's got potential before the end of the year to hit maybe 80, okay, which would be a good day in the office. But if you ride it to 80 and you think it's going to go to the moon, you will lose all your money because you just violated law number four of wealth, which is you're seeking unrealistic returns. And when you do that, your money will flee you every single time. There's simple laws. And I wish we had time to go into them, but yeah. I think it has a lot of merit. I think it's going to be around for a long time, but I don't think it's going to be the next US dollar. I think digital currency will, but the government, U.S. government, will create its own, and then you will be forced to trade in your Bitcoin for U.S. digital currency so that you can exchange it. Just like we exchange dollar bills today, you'll exchange digital currency. Guess what? You're already doing it, but it's just not in a quote-unquote organized fashion, but it will be. And those that don't get rid of 
their Bitcoin, and I'm just picking on the big boy, those that don't get rid of it, your Bitcoin won't go to zero. Matter of fact, your Bitcoin might become more valuable because now you've got something that the government wants. And if any of you remember what happened to gold, the same thing happened to gold. The government said, trade your gold in, we'll give you this price, and they made it illegal. And you cannot use gold as a legal tender. You can barter with it, but you can't use it as a legal tender, just like Bitcoin today. You can't use Bitcoin as a legal tender. You can barter. Maybe you can trade. It's the old school stuff. So you just have to understand the ramifications of what it is, what problem it solves, and then just understand that the government will not adopt Bitcoin as the next US currency. They will create their own, make your Bitcoin illegal. Your Bitcoin will fall in value because investor confidence will fall out. No big deal. Creates an awesome buying opportunity. Buy it then, hold it, and you'll probably be incredibly wealthy. But unfortunately, here's the downside, Eric. Wealth in building wealth is a marathon. Mm. Every successful investor will tell you it takes time. Everybody right now is buying into the FOMO, the fear of missing out, and they all are playing this get-rich-quick scheme. And I will promise each and every single one of you, if you're playing that game, you heard it from me first, you are going to lose all your money. And mark my word, you think I'm a fool for saying that now, but I've been around the block a couple times and I know what's coming and I know what's going to happen if you don't buy low, sell high and don't lose money. Come on, uh, Chris, such an honor to have you on my show, man. Thank you so much for dropping so many bombs on this episode, man. It's going to help so many people, including myself. Truly an honor to have you on, man. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure, man. Thank you. Thank you so much for checking out the show today. I wanted to just take one quick second of your time to point you to ericallenmedia.com. I have a ton of free and paid content on our resources tab. Click on that. Tons of books, tons of websites you can go check out. Some secret websites in there as well for you. But listen, I am available for hire for anything from product videos to content videos, review videos. I do a lot of how-to and explainer type videos, box opening videos for brands. I also do laser engraving for anything that's wood product. So if you need some you know, coasters made or fun tags or something like that, shoot me a DM, happy to help you out. You can check out some of my work on our YouTube channel there. Really appreciate you checking out the show today. Thank you so much for your time. Have an amazing day.